the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Lords and ladies, welcome back to Season 5 of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thanks for coming along on this journey as we time travel across the pond to 50 years ago and tag along with the Grateful Dead on their historic Europe 72 tour. We are bringing new episodes of the Deadcast to you weekly this season. Each episode covers the shows that took place on the Europe 72 tour 50 years to the week after they happened. Visit us at our website, dead.net slash deadcast, and explore the extra materials we have for you to devour for this episode. In fact, we have been releasing a daily dose of Europe 72 ephemera during Season 5, and there's new content for you on the regular. Also at dead.net slash deadcast, there's all of our past episodes, including the complete Seasons 1 through 4, and you can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform so you can listen where you like to listen. Thanks very much to everyone who's contributed stories over at stories.dead.net. We still want to hear from you. Was Europe 72 your favorite album ever at one point? What was it like when you first heard it? How did it change the way you felt about the Grateful Dead? We need your input. Give us your stories over at stories.dead.net. Hey, how about some new Europe 72 music for your collection? June 29th brings Lyceum 1972, the Complete Recordings Limited Edition. It's a 24 LP box set with the four complete shows from the tail end of the Europe 72 tour, which are the topic of today's podcast, available exclusively at dead.net. And of course, there's going to be a newly remastered version of the original Europe 72 release, available on CD, LP, and digitally also on July 29th. Well, this week we're back in jolly old England for a four-night run at the historic Lyceum Theater, May 23rd through May 26th, 1972. And yes, while these are the last four shows of the Grateful Dead's Europe 72 tour, by no means is your trip over. There's still one more episode to come next week before we wrap up Season 5. So let's finish up these pints and take the tube to the Strand in Covent Garden to meet up with Jesse Jarno. Grateful Dead and their family returned to London near the end of May 1972, seven weeks after their arrival. The Dead would record more than half of what became Europe 72 over the final four nights of the tour at the Lyceum Ballroom, including the entirety of the album's third LP. The shows at the Lyceum would become instant legends for band and fans alike. Everybody loved the Lyceum. Alan Trist of Einstein Publishing. That tour ending run in at the Lyceum, right in the heart of the theater district of London in the Strand was, was, uh, was pretty special because the band always liked to settle into a, 
a venue for several days and get comfortable, you know? And that really did happen at the Lyceum. You've seen the set lists, the way they structured four days of music. It had such a good vibe. And of course it had the, I think it had two stacks of balconies and things like that. And it was a beautiful venue. Grateful that archivist and legacy manager, David Lemieux. To end at a beautiful theater where you, you know, you really get to settle in. Paris is nice, a couple nights in Paris. Wembley's nice, a couple nights there. But to really settle in for four nights with the new riders, you get to hang out with the new riders, stay in a hotel and not have to leave for a while, I think was very special. And, uh, and you hear it in the music. As part of our daily dose on dead social media, we've posted a wonderful photo of the Lyceum, taken from the stage by Marianne Mayer before one of the shows. It gives a good feel for the venue. The promoters who'd worked with the band throughout continental Europe flew to London to celebrate, as did representatives from Warner Brothers, who set up promotional tables at the venue. Making it a proper Grateful Dead evening, the new riders of the Purple Sage even opened all four shows. Their record company, Columbia, came and did promotions as well. For a lot of our friends that we'd made throughout Europe, and in London, of course, were there too. So that there was a sense of an extended Grateful Dead family affair going on there too, you know. I remember Jean-Jacques and, and Danielle from Paris were there. I, I'm sure there was, and I think there was somebody from Holland. I can't remember. Danny Brooks, of course, and, and, and other people that, we, that were part of our London associates, record company people. But it was a grand finale in that way. Dana Brooks was the editor of the Book of the Dead, a free concert program distributed at the door each night. More recently, it was reproduced as part of the Europe 72, the complete recordings box set. Significantly, it was the first extended publication about the dead. Though it was only 30 pages, it contained interviews with all of the band members and a detailed biography that still holds up as a solid representation. Plus, lots of cool photos. It was Dana who, who wanted to make this happen. And we said, sure, how can we help? You know, because <laughs> we, I don't think we had the ability in those days to actually put a program together. It needed a professional publishing person, which we later became. Nicholas Merriweather is a founder of the Grateful Dead Studies Association and wrote liner notes for the excellent new box set of the Lyceum shows. I think the book does a great job of one of the bigger points about the entire tour, which is you listen to a band that's really trying to communicate with folks that they don't have any presumptions about. By 1972, they know who their fans are. But when they go to Europe, there's this whole other sort of ethos that envelops them and really makes them think about how do we want to convey who we are, what our project is. Because in 1972, they're also at at an, an apex of their, the term that comes to mind is empire building, but that in many ways, that's the opposite of what they mean. What we're getting at though, is this sense of a self-contained project that's based on music, but it's much more than music. It's music as a way of establishing community. That week, Bill Kreutzmann told an interviewer for Beat Instrumental, the dead is just some kind of contact that we try to make with an audience of people. When you're inside it, it's a hard thing to say. The dead arrived in London with a day or two to spare. There was some additional work to be done as well. Well, benefit work. I'm not sure when in the run it happened, but we'll place it here before we get too carried away. 
The most interesting thing for, that happened for me at that was a return back to the, um, the Glastonbury Festival because that had happened in 1971, despite the fact that the, uh, the, the dead haven't been able to kind of be the uh, headliners of it, of it. Pete Townsend was there and there, were, uh, there was a wonderful English band of, of our ilk then called Hawkwind, you know, that played. And they, these were all recorded, but the, the festival lost a lot of money because as, as an original festivals often do, you know, I think it was John Coleman was involved with financial affairs along with Andrew Kerr. And he asked me if the band would, uh, would give some music to, a, to an album that they were putting out to try to raise funds to cover their debts. And the dead said, yeah, we'd love to. And uh, they looked through the files because in those days they would listen to two tracks a lot on the road in America too. You know? I mean, they would, they would do instant uh, you know, replay of the concerts as part of their sense of their due diligence about their work. Bill Kreutzman told Steve Turner of Beat Instrumental, we listen to the tapes and scrutinize what we've been playing. Sometimes we surprise ourselves at what we've played. We listen to see how we can correct ourselves. Maybe we listen and the whole feeling of our performance has been wrong. It never hurts us to play it back. Not only do we learn about playing, but also about recording techniques. They'd been checking in to the tapes as we went along, you know. I don't know how that happened technically. We knew we had, we had the good stuff. It's worth noting that while the Dead were making the music of the Europe 72 tour, they kept updated on their own work. When playing any given Dark Star on the tour, they may have just listened to any of the previous Dark Stars. Quickly, though, the appropriate good stuff was located. Dark Star from Wembley at the beginning of the tour was a well, we can give them 26 minutes of this, you know, a whole side of music. During that Lyceum stretch, Garcia and Matthews and myself, we walked down to Soho uh, to a studio to mix the Dark Star. It was a very interesting studio, completely in an anonymous part of, of, of London, Soho. It was a, not a difficult job for Jerry and Bob to mix down the tapes, you know. It was a, a full-on studio. And we were told at the time that, that one of the uh, Beatles' earlier albums had been mixed there by uh, their arranger, whose name I still forget. That, that was so interesting, to, to have that little step back into history and tie together different things like the Glastonbury Fair and a Beatles recording studio and uh, we were at the Lyceum. It was just like we were in San Francisco, going down to a studio and do something. London was our town, you know, at that point. And so it was that The Dead released the first live music from the Europe 72 tour, finding its way onto the triple LP Glastonbury Fair, The Electric Score, released by Revelation Enterprises in July 1972. 
We talked extensively about this version of Dark Star on episode 2 of this season, and you can check out Dr. Graham Boone's complete annotation on YouTube, titled The Wonders of Dark Star. Besides the original Dark Star 7-inch and the Live Dead version, it would be the only Dark Star released until Two from the Vault in 1992. For deadheads in both Europe and the States, it was as welcome as it was deep. For American deadheads, though, it was definitely a record-collecting obscurity. As a piece of music released into the record-collecting wilds, it also had an impact outside the dead world. Archivist David Lemieux. 2005, maybe, I don't know, Bernardo Bertolucci, 2004, was making a movie called The Dreamers. And Bertolucci had had that Glastonbury Fair album from 72. And he remembered that Dark Star. So he wanted for this movie, The Dreamers, which was about the Paris 1968 uh, cultural riots, Truffaut and Godard, they, it was an incredible movie. And I'll never forget, he wanted to use a piece of the music from The Dark Star that he'd remembered from 30 years ago. So we licensed to Bertolucci this piece of Dark Star from Wembley from 4872, one of my favorite Dark Stars. And I got to choose the piece of music it was. Um, Bertolucci trusted us to give him something good. So we gave him this great piece of music. And then the way he used it in the movie, it's layered. I saw the movie in the theater. Jean-Luc Godard, he's looking down on me from my office. I've got a photo that my professor took of Godard in 1979-80. And in the movie, he, the Dark Star is playing while there's a piece of Godard talking and uh, from one of his movies over it. He layered Dark Star with Godard. into town the morning of the first show were Joe's Lights, the former Fillmore East lighting crew semi-adrift in Europe since the closure of the Rainbow Theater earlier in the year. Please welcome back to the Deadcast, your friend and ours, the great filmmaker and dead freak, Alan Arkish. We hooked up with the New Riders in Amsterdam at a festival in Amsterdam that was on whatever their equivalent is a Memorial Day weekend. Because they, that's a big deal to go from London to Amsterdam with all that equipment. And so we went to that festival, and Ike and Tina Turner were at that festival, the New Riders and the Pink Floyd. We were put up in the same hotel as the Riders and as Ike and Tina. But they didn't give us, they, whatever the per diem was, we couldn't get, we didn't have free room service or anything which was insane because we were been up all night. So we go into the hotel after being up all night doing the shows. We went back to the hotel and it was five in the morning and they were setting up this gigantic breakfast buffet. So we told them that we were guests of the festival and we gave them all the names. We were not to be denied. And we decimated the buffet. And just as we were finishing out of the elevator comes Marmaduke and the new riders. Hey, guys, uh, will we see you? Are you doing the shows in London? And I remember us saying that we would be taking a later ferry than theirs. So Marmaduke gave us all their leftover hash. 
this is the kind of thing you remember. <laughs> and said, well, because we're going straight to the ferry, so do whatever you want with it and then toss it. So for dessert, we all ate the hash and went to the Van Gogh Museum. We ate that hash and being up all night, we go to the museum with the Van Goghs and they are like spinning off the walls. And then we slept on the ferry. Be sure to check out Alan on the YouTube series, Trailers from Hell. The new riders of the Purple Sage had been having their own adventures since making their European debut playing before the dead at the Bickershaw Festival. They played a handful of other shows in the UK before heading over to the continent. Our friend Corey Arnold has pieced together all the details on his Hooteroland blog. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. David Nelson has a few memories of the tour. We were eating at this place. It was before a gig or after the gig. And uh, there was this location, this restaurant that was like, and it was Europe. So I wasn't familiar with how they do things here. But we go down and you go in through like a concierge or a doorman, you know, and somebody came up and asked me something that, that rang a bell to me. And I thought, oh, yeah. And he said, can I uh, talk to you up here? And we just stepped up over this little mound onto the, past the parking lot. And he proceeds to save me <laughs> uh, Christian wise. You know, he had me say a prayer out loud and stuff like that. And I just went along with it, went, okay, yeah. And he said, okay, you're saved now. You <laughs> shall have eternal life. And I thought, well, I went in and everybody was sitting down at the tables and I went to, I just got saved, everybody, you know. Some people go to Europe and get snow globes or cool sweaters or knives. David Nelson got saved. Righteous. We'll pop back to David in a bit, but the new writers rejoined the extended cast for the four nights. Promoter John Morris. I think we added the Lyceum towards the end. The whole thing was they were coming, they'd agreed to come do the rainbow. And then we lost the rainbow. So this whole whole tour got expanded from makeup dates, you know, to cover it. Wembley and then on one end and then Lyceum on the other. The British dead freaks have, to a head, nothing but love for the Lyceum, both the venue and the four nights of music that unfolded. Welcome back, Chris Jones. We all went up to the, the Lyceum. About half a dozen of us went there. And uh, absolutely amazing venue. It's an old theatre-type ballroom. And um, a big stage. There's sort of plush velvet fittings and things. And very, very nice place. Lots of room for dancing at the front. Or for just sitting down and, and rolling a joint. And, and at the back, tables and chairs. Graham Walker. It's in the centre of London. It's uh, just off the Strand, which every American's heard of. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's right there, near, close to the West End. And the esteemed music journalist, Ken Hunt. Directly across, at a diagonal angle, is the, the place where the first occurrence in English of the word folk song occurred. Uh, and in, 18, in 1847, a woman called... This, this, I'm working on this book by a, a singer called Martin Carthy, and this appears in the book. In 1847, Mary um, Howitt translated a German folk song. Uh, in English, it's The Three Little Roses. And the original was um, Volkslied in German, which she translated as folks, you know, apostrophe S song. 
So just across the road from where the dead played in 1847, someone had invented the word folk song in English. Alex Allen. It's a strange place because, it, I mean, it was built in the 19th century sometime as a theatre, but then they it sort of get into difficulties of theatre and they converted it into a, what was called the Lyceum Ballroom. Every, it's all down as the Lyceum Theatre on everything, but I, I think technically then it was actually called the Lyceum Ballroom. Originally opened in 1834, replacing an earlier iteration of the Strand Lyceum located nearby, the Lyceum the Dead played had many lives in the nearly century and a half between its first curtain raising and when the dead came in 1972. It had been an opera house, legitimate theater, a cinema, and in the 1940s became a ballroom. In the early 60s, before the Beatles hit big even, it was a pioneering dance music venue, one of the first places in the world where people grooved to records spun by a DJ. And it, of course, had another life in the hippie era. They'd stripped out all the seats downstairs, and then they they had... um quite a big stage and then at the back there was a bar and tables and I mean before that I mean had things like the Miss World contest held there I mean it was a quite a a, you know sort of eclectic mix. If you look at the two venues in London that that were closely corresponded I suppose to the Fillmore and the Avalon were the UFO, uh, the UFO um, and the Middle Earth um, in Covent Garden. When they closed down, what then emerged was something called the Midnight Court, which was at the Lyceum. Everybody who were, if you like, counterculturally A-list, pretty much played there in 7071. And basically, the Midnight Court, it, it kicked off at midnight, and we, we turned out into the street again around 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. And there were four bands at a time that played you know, each show. Bands I saw, there were mainly the British bands. I mean, the Nice, Coliseum, John Mayer. I fret wretched to sleep for rip down all hate, I scream. The light of life's all black and white, scream from my skull, I dream. Romantic fact of musketeers, foundation deep somehow. But I was so much older than you know I'm young. That was The Nice, featuring Keith Emerson, doing Bob Dylan's My Back Pages from their live album Elegy. Graham Walker was a deadhead for sure, but the dead didn't really come through. Live Dead was the the album. If I was ever dubious about my interest in The Grateful Dead, Live Dead confirmed my lifelong (laughs) uh, connection to it. My favorite bands through the late 60s and early 70s were Traffic, who never disappointed. They always played great sets. The Nice, before Emerson became a bit of a you know cliche. Bless him, though, because they were excellent. They really were. And Pink Floyd. I can remember I was at a classical concert a few years back, um, and it was, um, I think, the London Symphony Orchestra. It was up in Leeds, which is not that far away from where I am. I was talking to a guy next to me, and he was... He was writing a PhD on emotion in music. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So we, we talked for a while. And uh, I, I said, you know, the one or two classical things that, that mean a lot to me in terms of you know, the emotional pull. And I said, during that time, 
I would go to a Pink Floyd gig and every time they did Saucer Full of Secrets, I would cry. In early 1972, just before the dead arrived in Europe, Pink Floyd debuted their Dark Side of the Moon live show, releasing the LP a year later. I was surprised at how many British heads no longer flew their freak flags for the Floyd. A couple of friends of mine stopped going to see Pink Floyd because they never forgave them for what they did to Sid. <laughs> I forgave them. And, and I mean, as it turns out, I mean, I do exactly the same in my situation. This was the counterculture. This was the late 60s, early 70s. It was us against the world and we were the minority. They were our band. I mean, you know, they were the house band until they got too big. And it wasn't, it wasn't the same because the counterculture became corporate and became mainstream and became nothing like it used to be. The optimism had gone to some extent. Chris Jones. I saw them through um, the um, Dark Side of the Moon show um, when that just come out, the Floyd, at um, Earl's Court. And as I said to a lot of people at the time, it pretty much left me cold. I mean, a lot of people loved it. I mean... They loved the um, light show. They loved the um, carbon monoxide, the dry ice effects and all that sort of thing. No, I liked the music, but what I didn't like about it was I could have played the record and I could have listened to the show and I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. But then the dead came to town. With the Grateful Dead, you go along there and it's everything is different. You know, same songs, it's different. I mean, how many times have I listened to, you know, He's Gone or Tennessee Jet or Loser or Ramble on Rose? And they still draw me in because every time you listen, that guitar playing in particular or the bass playing, it's not the same. You know, the, the drum uh, drumming isn't the same. It's, there's something new every time. There were two essential attractions. One was the music. And one was the um, the culture. Certainly for us over in the UK, the dead personified to a large extent the counterculture that, that was coming, and a lot of a lot of our changes and our influences were coming from uh, San Francisco. And uh, the dead were very significant in that. Talking about uh, the '72 tour, for me, looking back at it now, it's in a sense the last flowering of the counterculture because. At that point, the underground magazines were still going very well. So there's a lot of information being shared and people were prepared for the dead to come over. Um, everybody knew what it was all about. And I've been to a lot of shows at the Lyceum before then, uh, in 70, 71, with a lot of really good bands. But it was never quite the same as it was for those 72 shows. I've never seen so many people crammed into one place in my time. They were swinging off the um, off the stairwells. It was amazing. Uh, and in a sense, it was the, the last gathering of the tribes in the UK before it got, I don't know, corporate, cynical. And it was magical. It was absolutely amazing. It, it, it became everything that I'd hoped it, it was. Promoter John Morris. They were probably some of the most amazing shows we ever did anywhere because the theater was great. It was a very, very straight venue for the dead. And, but it was a beautiful place and they loved it, probably. Yeah. It was a phenomenal venue and it was perfectly suited for the dead because we could open the roof. Yes, John Morris did just say that the Lyceum roof opened up. It only opened from memory when 
you could guarantee that it was going to be a, a beautiful summer's evening. And in London, you can't often guarantee that. So it was a very rare event when they actually managed to do it. Ben Holler of the lighting crew. We played in a hall that was built prior to 1776. That last one in London, that, that was a great place. It had been rebuilt. London gets burned down every couple of years. But it was a, a theater, two or 3,000 seats. And the roof slid open when, they, when it was good weather, which is, what, two days a year or something. Yeah, it was like these stadiums nowadays. But it was a, a roof that was on some kind of a contraption that opened it up. The dead live inside a venue, but with the sky out there. According to historical weather data, it was unseasonably warm all four days to the Lyceum shows, with daytime highs between 79 and 81 degrees Fahrenheit and nighttime lows in the mid-50s, with no recorded precipitation. Keep in mind that at any point during the Lyceum shows, and therefore during most of Europe 72, the album, heads could look up and see the sky. The venue is still in operation, but its current operators probably don't find much use for the giant skylight. I think it had live music through till maybe the early 80s, but I mean, it was, it was mainly mainstream stuff. And now, I'm not sure if they made it into a cinema or a theatre, but the, the, the Lion King, either as the movie or the play, has been there for the last 20,000 years, it seems. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> that's, what, that's what's there right now. And I haven't been in, probably I haven't been in since 72, to be honest. That's probably the last time I was there. Joe's lights weren't contracted to work the Lyceum gigs, but you can bet Alan Arkish made it inside. I went to all the shows at the Lyceum and was working there in some unofficial but for cash thing because that was a tough union house. And I think maybe I was in a lighting booth trying to explain to the lighting guy who everyone was in the band. Ben Haller who had been in the light show with us, was now assisting Candace on the tour. So we were hearing a lot about the tour, and we were hearing all the stuff about the Bolo's bus and the Bozo's bus. And the the music is so good because their whole vibe was so good. And so in a way, their trip to Europe is an extension of the bus, the further bus. I think that cannot be discounted. Jean-Claude Kaufman, who is my partner and who did the Lyceum shows with me, he's also the guy who did the Mean Joe Green commercial for Coca-Cola because he was uh, a producer. He'd left, gotten out of the business and gone back to his straight work, which was in the uh, advertising business. He went into the dressing room and he said, to, is there anything more we can get you? Everybody enjoyed it. Everybody was really happy with it. The sound checks had gone great. And somebody said, well, we have everything but Coke. Jean-Claude disappeared, came back an hour later with two cases of Coca-Cola. And the band, band cracked up. After the Leal show, the tour's blow stash had very likely been tossed in an airport trash can at the behest of an irate Bill Kreutzmann, an episode we discussed last episode. Or maybe the touring party had just grown wise to the fact that the blow stash had been dosed with orange sunshine. Jim Smolin. On May the 23rd, 1972, I flew from JFK Airport in New York to London Heathrow. 
hopping on a bus to head into downtown London. I looked on the bus and somebody had put a placard on there that said Grateful Dead tonight, Lyceum Theater. So I got where I was going, dropped all my things off. I'd never been to London, didn't know where I was, but I was determined to get to the Lyceum. I got there late in the day. I bought a ticket, and I believe the ticket was very cheap, under, under $10. For locals, it was a little easier. Ken Hunt. In the case of um, the Lyceum, it was just one underground line, which was really handy. And then a walk across Waterloo Bridge of Waterloo Sunset fame. Archivist David Lemieux. I think these four nights kind of take you on a journey where the first night is that triumphant. We're back in London, but now we're playing a beautiful theater. We're not in the big arena. Graham Walker. For the dead and new riders, the ticket probably said something like seven o'clock or something like that for the evening show. So I turned up at a ridiculously early time of seven o'clock. And I think I must have been the first one in for the first show. You go in through the front door and then you climb a, a, a large stairwell. And there was me about five stairs behind Jerry and Mountain Girl walking up the stage. And so I, it was, I thought, whoa, okay, great stuff. You know? <laughs> None of this green room shit. They're, they're just kind of hanging out. I go upstairs. I mean, it's, it's a, it was a, a, a gaudy ballroom, basically. Huge, really, really large. Um, um, and it used to be, um, you know, ballroom dancing. I mean, that, that was what it was designed for in the first instance. And I went into this theater not knowing where I was going and realized it's such a small theater. I was way up front by myself. I met a group of people from Amsterdam who we ended up hanging out all night. And it was the show of all shows. I think if I remember right, it was the New Riders first, and then the dead came on. After the Dead had played instantly legendary shows at Empire Pool and the Bickershaw Festival earlier in the tour, check out episodes two and six of this season respectively, it was no surprise that there were British heads ready to go see them multiple nights in a row. Alex Allen. Bickershaw was a tremendous experience. It was my first time seeing the Dead, lots of new songs, a really um, you know, fantastic experience. The Lyceum um, was actually a much, much better venue in many ways. That was the end of the tour. You felt they were probably, you know, a bit more relaxed and especially being able to play four nights at the same venue. It was definitely Bickershaw that made me decide I must go to the Lyceum shows uh, and indeed so knocked out that I must go to all four shows. <laughs> the contrast between that and then the Lyceum shows in it, which may come on to was, was huge, really, in terms of the venue and the ambience. Chris Jones. Then Lyceum, they gave so many freebies away. They were giving you the Book of the Dead. They were also giving these spinners, you know, where you, where you pull a string and a thing in that card, a cardboard thing spins around. And they had some Grateful Dead ones and they had some new riders. I've still got my new riders one. It's just good PR now looking back at it, you know, but... Uh, at the time, it was really, it was unheard of that so much free stuff was given away at concerts. Warner Brothers was there in force all four nights with a promotional booth as well as their own private balcony booth. 
Columbia Records, home to New Riders of the Purple Sage, did the same. I do remember being quite impressed by the new riders because for one reason or another, I wasn't expecting them. I didn't know there was a support, um, certainly on the first night, and, and out they came. Um, and I can remember a, a, a great version of Down in the Boondocks that they played. I mean, that, that was my distinctive memory of, of the new riders. But they were excellent. I mean, they really were very, very good. Uh, and they did a, a pretty... From memory, uh, a pretty long set. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, like a, a 45 minute support group set. It was a really, really lovely venue. I felt really at home there, really comfortable. And again, I sat in a night, you know, it was fairly well spaced. I don't know how many people were there. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to know what the numbers of uh, attendance what the numbers were there. But um, it didn't seem to be crushed, but there seemed to be a lot of people, a lot of people there, but it wasn't, wasn't at all crushed. Good evening. Welcome to here. Welcome to Here Indeed. It was the first time the dead opened a show with Chuck Berry's The Promised Land, its standard home for much of the next decade. Alex Allen. And it was very relaxed because you could wander around. I didn't don't think I did, but you could go upstairs and there were still seats on the balcony and, and um, whatever the top tier is called. On the ground, it was just open. You're just standing and you could get very close. I don't remember there being a huge crush. You know, I remember sort of alternating between perhaps having a beer and sitting at the back um, and then going right up front, staring at Jerry Garcia you know, with his fingers and um, being knocked out by Phil Lesh's bass. And it may be that my audio equipment wasn't, well, it was pretty good, but um, for listening to the records, I hadn't quite realised what a contribution Phil Lesh made to the overall sound and the overall performance. And, and actually seeing Bob Weir and, and recognising what, what his contribution was. stage right pretty much behind Jerry and they'd play whatever they played and then when it was Pigpen's turn he would just kind of wander out and probably brush against Jerry on the way out um, and they'd go into whatever you know the, Jerry would play the, the blues chord and ba-boom off they go and I remember Pigpen very very clearly and that may be because I never saw him again 
Uh, maybe that was distinct, but I can clearly remember uh, Mr. Charlie. I take a little powder, take a little salt, put it in my shotgun, and I go walking out. In fact, the version of Mr. Charlie from the first night at the Lyceum was the keeper, used on Europe 72, take number 19. That is, they played it at every show of the tour up until then, and would play it at the next three as well. There are no overdubs at all on it. On one hand, sweet take. On the other hand, by the time the band was doing overdubs in the summer, Pigman was too sick to participate. Mr. Charlie would be his final original contribution to a Grateful Dead album. They debuted it the previous summer, just after finishing work on Skull and Roses. This is from an early version, recorded August 6, 1971, at the Hollywood Palladium, now Road Trips Volume 1, Number 3. Rich digs it severely. Besides missing a verse, the song was almost the same as in its final form. On the album, Mr. Charlie is credited to McKernan and lyricist Robert Hunter. In 1980, our friend Ken Hunt, who we'll hear more from later, asked Hunter about the nature of his collaboration with Pigpen on Mr. Charlie, and Hunter's answer was surprising. Well, that wasn't a collaboration, he said. Pigpen is an old-time blues man about that. We're going to do this song, and he wants a piece of the action. I can say that safely now that he's dead. Pig would let me write for him, which is very, very nice, just as an artist and as a very close personal friend. I liked writing blues and stuff like Easy Wind, the kind of stuff that Pig could do, and nobody else could do very well. There's a Robert Hunter solo demo of Mr. Charlie out and about in the world as well, said to be from 1970 with an extra verse. Ask a taper. It's the same Mr. Charlie we know, but based on the demo, I'd argue that Pig totally deserves his songwriting credit, especially compared to the fleshed out and arranged version that appeared on Europe 72. But who is Mr. Charlie? As always, probably Robert Hunter would welcome any interpretation, but the term stretches back to the 19th century and was still in use in the 20th. Let's start with this definition, from the Underground Dictionary published in 1971 by Dr. Eugene Landy, later the quack psychiatrist to Brian Wilson. Mr. Charlie, noun. 1. White man, boss. 2. White establishment man. He is one who lives in suburbia, usually has a white-collar job, two to three children, a station wagon and a compact car, and a white picket fence. He has short hair and puts the American flag outside his house on patriotic holidays. In short, he is part of the mainstream American life and society, a.k.a. Herbie, a.k.a. Mr. Jones, C. Establishment. But that's the 20th century version. In the 19th century, the term Mr. Charlie was synonymous with plantation owner. Miss Anne was the female equivalent. The names have changed a few times, but the modern equivalents of Mr. Charlie and Miss Anne aren't too hard to find in contemporary culture. Like the Candyman, Mr. Charlie turns up as a character in numerous folk and pop songs. 
A close read of Robert Hunter's usage finds something that's not quite as easy as the Chuba Chuba sing-along chorus suggests, that the narrator evidently works, more or less, as Mr. Charlie's enforcer. Not really a very sympathetic position. had debuted a few songs during the Europe 72 period that he was singing nearly every night of the tour. Chinatown Shuffle and The Stranger. Just like Bob Weir tucked aside some of his new originals for his own album, Ace, I imagine Pigpen was perhaps doing the same for his own oft-discussed solo album, perhaps alongside Empty Pages, played a few times the summer before. Mr. Charlie disappeared when Pigpen died, and a sad side story of the Lyceum shows is that they were the final performances for Pigpen's repertoire, though Bob Weir revived some of his covers later on. Mr. Charlie returned after The Grateful Dead dissolved, performed at various points by Phil Lesh and Friends, The Dead, and Dead & Co. Gonna scare you up a choo-choo. Mr. Charlie told me, Mr. Charlie told me so. Thank you. At the end of a song, he would sincerely thank the audience for listening before retiring back behind his keyboard. Alex Allen. I remember, you know, Tennessee Jed hearing the words, um, you know, as I say, it was new to me, but hearing the Black Mire Kick My Dog or whatever and, um, uh, you know, being stuck in my mind. I into Charlie Fog. Robert Hunter lyrics that um, you know really um, grabbed me, and uh, and hence my my I mean my website was primarily I mean it was you know the, its focus is obviously Grateful Dead, but actually but most of it now is Robert Hunter stuff. Alex's site whitegum.com is my first stop when researching the finer footnotes of Grateful Dead lyrics. We've talked to him a bunch about Robert Hunter's lyrics, especially in episode last year called Keys to the Rain celebrating Hunter's 80th. And I remember things like China Cat Sunflower, seeing actually, hadn't, I don't think I'd realized that Bob Weir played um, his part in there, um, the familiar riff at the beginning. And so it was great to be able to get, get right up front. I knew straight away. It was not formulaic. It was not, you know, here are, we're going to play our best tunes, our hits or whatever, uh, and we're going to be here for an hour and 15 minutes and then we're going to go. It was much more relaxed. It was, and that, that, that 
X factor between the audience and the band, which is hard to put your finger on to a large extent because it's not visible, but was very, very definitely there. I mean, we were all in the band for those shows and it was very, there wasn't, you know, the barrier between the stage and the crowd wasn't there like it was for most other things anybody ever went to see. It was, it was, a, it was qualitatively different. Cat Sunflower, I Know You Ride Our Combo, made the final set of mixes when the band was picking the album, as did versions of Chinatown Shuffle, Jack Straw, and Comes a Time. We'll post a full list of the tour mixes with our episode next week. In the first set, they even debuted a song that received a three-star marking on the tape box itself, though didn't make the tour mixes. Rockin' Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu by Huey Piano Smith and producer Johnny Vincent had a very brief life in the dead repertoire. A few versions in Europe and one more in the States before slipping into Jerry Garcia's side songbook occasionally. People in the crowd really wanted to hear Dark Star. You wouldn't recognize it anyway, man. How much you want to bet, man? I bet you wouldn't. I bet we could slip it in on you, and you never know. I'll bet you a pack, pound. How do you know we haven't already done it? I'll bet you a pack of Dunhills. That's it. Dork Star. And I point this out because if you listen very closely, I'm pretty sure you can hear an interjection by Ben Holler of the Lighting Crew. In our episode about the shows in West Germany, he told us about how he would sometimes prank the band by yelling for the Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit or getting somebody in the crowd to do it for him. Compare how he says White Rabbit here Bite the rabbit. with how it sounds when somebody shouts for it at the Lyceum. White Rabbit! If it's not Ben, shout out to the second White Rabbit shooter, or shouter. The Dead didn't play White Rabbit, though the next night... I'm pretty sure that was Ben shouting in triumph at the end of the quote. In this next story from tour architect Sam Cutler, remember that in rock speak, gig means any number of shows at a single venue. The last gig of the tour we did, which was in London, was in a um, place that was run by uh, the security guys were all in like nice red jackets, all very neat, white shirts with black bow ties, you know. And it was like all very organised and everything. And the manager came up to me. He was all kind of his hair all like, you know, slipped back. And, now, we have to end this concert at 11 o'clock. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we've got to end at 11 o'clock because otherwise we'd go into overtime. It would cost far too much money. We have to pay the staff and everything. I said, well, there's no way the Grateful Dead are going to agree to that, man. And it's not in the contract. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? Forget it. No way. I said, the Grateful Dead play until they decide that they're fed up with playing and they don't want to play anymore. It's as simple as that. That's what's going to happen. Anyway, it was kind of left us up in the air. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in a few minutes and we're going to play for a while. And I know your ticket reads from 7 till 12, but I know you'll forgive us if we go a little later tonight. So, of course, what happened was, um, miraculously, all the, all the security got high since some, uh, goodness knows how, but they did. And so the black ties would come off, the red jackets were taken off, there were various bare-chested security guys, right? Hedge would report all four Lyceum shows running to the wee hours. In the second set on the first night, the band drifted into the song people had been requesting earlier. Welcome back, Graham Boone. I love the way this first jam goes from stillness to rippling movement. A quietness. Drawing out the moment. And we start up again. Jerry on high A. And we've returned to the chord A, the home chord. Jerry with this classic triplet solo style. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. You can hear Keith and Bob staying home on that one chord of A. And then moving around. Energy is growing. Move back to E minor. Jerry starting to build back up. Up to high A and then back down again. And then holding that beautiful D note, riffing on that D. Listen to Bob. Bob's hearing Jerry. Since its debut in late 1967, Dark Star had expanded and expanded, and mostly expanded more. It would do the same after the Europe 72 tour as well. In its first few years, the song's improvisation followed a more structured path, with Bill Kreutzmann and Mickey Hart on hand percussion, with Kreutzmann often shifting to full drum kit by the end. When Hart departed in 1971, Kreutzmann shifted his strategy, jumping on the kit from the start. Giving him a space for the one is where you think it is style drumming that we discussed in the Netherlands episode. One of Kreutzmann's nicknames inside the band was the Gang of One, and I totally hear that in pretty much every Europe 72 Dark Star. Really nice feel through here. Jerry with repeating riffs that really get people on a burst of energy. 
Delaunay, an A chord. Really beautiful chording from Bob. And then some great backup from Keith. And, and now you can hear Pigpen on organ. What a wonderful sound, everybody together. Once Kreutzmann started starting the song on drums, the jam structure began to shuffle, with motifs showing up everywhere. And then here comes Bob with this interesting vamp on E minor, a kind of a two chord vamp. And it's supported by Phil, who does a little bit of walking bass. And then some funky bass. Jared getting into a little bit of his arpeggio riff. On A minor though, not on the usual E minor. Though not quite exactly the same, that riff is genetically related to what old-school tapers call the Sputnik theme, one of the key components in those earlier, more structured dark stars. A few episodes back, we posed the question of where the name came from. It turns out that the term Sputnik theme is coming from inside the house, or at least from inside the Deadcast family. Over to one of our excellent German correspondents, Volkmar Rupp. Ah, the Sputnik theme. Ha! That term first came up as kind of a joke. In the late 80s, early 90s, Uli and me started to discuss and time all the dark stars we had at that time, which weren't that much. Very soon we discovered some reoccurring themes. Hey, this one sounds like a Sputnik. What? Yeah, it sounds like a theme from outer space, traveling around as some kind of weird satellite. Ah. And in some way, it connects the dark star to the Earth. And so, we coined the, the term Sputnik. Later on, we agreed with Jim Powell on it, and since then, it has settled into common vocabulary. Our first description reads, Sputnik, slow starting tingling, often by Jerry alone, moving into high-pitched guitar picking, appears as early as 68, in 70 used as transition out of space, Later incarnations have a hint character only. Many solar orbits ago, Uli and Volkmar compiled a miniature book with their dark star maps. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. And all of a sudden, Phil hitting A major harmony. Mm-hmm. Are we going to go back to dark star? Looks like Bob wants to, maybe. Is really slowing down, and Jerry suddenly hits a, an open D chord, which is the, the chord of morning dew. Bob's still thinking a dark star there for a second, but and then. We're into morning dew. It's 
interesting because it's also mixolydian, but it's in a different key, so the feeling is different, and the feeling of your fingers on the instrument is different. Beautiful performance of Morning Dew following Dark Star. going and going. There was even another song debut late in the evening, kinda. It might sound like they're going back and to not fade away from going down the road feeling bad, but Jerry knows better. played Hey Bo Diddley when they backed the rock legend at the Academy two months earlier and soundchecked it a few times since. It had come out a few more times in 72 and once, as David Leopold reminds us, with the Neville Brothers in 1986 featuring Bob Weir on tambourine. For a brief period, it was an alternate destination in the late show Boogie Down. The Times of London gushed about the show, wrote Miles Palmer, It was rock music devoid of theatrical effects, but glittering with expertise. Unlike some critics on the tour, Palmer made it to the end of the very long night, calling out the magic ballad, Uncle John's Band, that closed the set. Oh ho, what I want to know is, where does the time go, Palmer wrote. Where indeed, I thought, looking at my watch. It was 1.50 a.m. Well, almost. The show definitely went long. Graham Walker. At that point, I was living in Watford, so that was about 15 miles away. I think the first night I actually drove in. Subsequently, I, did, I realized that that probably wasn't a good idea. So I, I honestly can't remember what happened. I probably uh, got back to the railway station and wait for the first train in the morning, which would have been about six, I guess. So it wouldn't have been too long a wait. Certainly the, the last buses and trains had well gone, probably even before the dead came on stage. So certainly for the second set. Jim Smolin. I think the show started around 8, and I think I, we left there. It was well after 3 a.m. I go outside. I tell these guys from Amsterdam I'm going to take, uh, take the underground, the tube, back to where I was going. They said, the tube's closed, mate. So people I never knew before gave me a ride back to where I was going. All I can say is, I've seen the dead a lot of times. That show was the show of all shows. With the gear set up at the Lyceum, the dead had a party the next afternoon. Steve Parrish. We met a lot of people in England 
the promoters took us out to St. John's, Jerusalem. We had a wild party out there and a lot of uh, people associated with Apple Records and the Rolling Stones came out and stuff like that, you know, so we had a good party there. The new riders of the Purple Sage were along for the ride. There's a photo of Jerry Garcia, Bob Weir, David Nelson, and John Dawson with acoustic guitars in St. John's Jerusalem Chapel. But a lot of what people remember about the day was the softball. David Nelson played softball with the dead sometimes back home. We arranged to go to this place in, I think, near Fairfax, where they had a baseball diamond and uh, and uh, go there and hit balls. And I got movies of that. I mean, just little clips of it in my home movies. St. John's Jerusalem, we had a big game that day, and that's mostly that day. Now, you know, if you go back into the 40s when our American servicemen were in England, they didn't like to play cricket. You know, cricket's a very annoying game if you're American raised on baseball. And so we were always playing baseball in America at the time. We played the Starship. We played the Dope Dealers of Marin. We played Bill Graham's team. We played the one-legged sisters from hell and all these teams, you know, and we had a lot of fun at it. So we were still whizzing on that right at the time. And you'll see us all swinging those bats. And we had a lot of fun. It was a big, beautiful place, you know, looked like where Robin Hood would have hung out or something like that. We offered an in-depth history of the dead softball team, the dead ringers, on our Ripple episode during our American Beauty season. For both bands, roadies were from Pendleton, Oregon. And so one of them roadies was Gary Harover, who was a big guy who was uh, good at baseball. And he was actually a draft pick for the Chicago White Sox at one point. Anyway, so we we go to this guy's house. There was a, a guy and his family who offered us that they wanted us to come over and visit and offered a place to stay and stuff like that. And, And he had in England, he had out in his back area, a little baseball diamond that was drawn up, you know, they don't know a whole lot about baseball, but, uh, he had a bat and uh, a couple of softballs and a couple of bats and a softball. And so anyway, we took our positions. We split into a couple of teams. I mean, it wasn't full team or anything, but it was just to play, you know. And I'm out in uh, like center field or right field, so to speak. And uh, Harover hits uh, the softball so hard that the seams came off. The the little the binding, you know, that has the raised area on a softball, you know, that just ripped off and came off. And as I caught it. It was going flap, 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 flap. You know, he almost obliterated the ball itself. That was the last time we played baseball, I think, was that day at St. John's Jerusalem. That was the last baseball game that was on. And there were some films of it. Marianne Mayer took a lot of great pictures there of us because we were really camera shy. Didn't let a lot of people take pictures, unfortunately. We've posted some sweet action shots of the Dead Ringers' last intra-squad game as part of the Daily Dose on social media, including a shot I love of Jerry Garcia flagrantly distracting outfielder David Nelson. Then it was on to the Bozo and Bolo buses one more time, an hour or so west back to London for night two at the Lyceum. Archivist David Lemieux. 524, the second show. I think the most under-the-radar show on the tour. 
But every single song at this show is played incredibly well. This was the band settling into the second show of a four-night run at a venue. They don't have to leave. They don't have to leave the hotel for a week. They were so locked in on 524. Again, I will really encourage people to check that show out because it's a concise show. The playing in the band, the other one, everything about this show is, is concise. They mean business. They're focused. They're together. It's positive energy. In the audience was music journalist Andy Childs, who'd been blown away at Empire Pool. I bought tickets for the, for the middle two shows. It was intimate. It had the feeling of a, a very kind of living room concert vibe because the Lyceum isn't that big. I mean, that's that's why I wanted to go after the Wembley show because the Wembley show is you know, it's quite a big arena and if you're in the wrong seats, they can look a long way away. But with the Lyceum, there's a sense of intimacy, which I thought was always important with what they were doing. And But it definitely was my impression that there were a lot of Americans at all those shows. So automatically there was a different feel to the, to the audience and a different way of, um, I don't know, just different vibe of the, the whole thing. Welcome back, Bill Giles, now of the Grateful Dudes. The thing about the Lyceum is just the nicest venue. That It's a ballroom. So there's a floor and floor for dancing. At the back, there's a balcony. And the balcony has tables and chairs. You can sit at your tables and enjoy you know, whatever's going on on stage. And that's what I did both nights for the new riders, set up on the balcony had a good time watching the band from the balcony and then went down onto the floor and, uh, you know, right, right, right at the front for the dead. And then, you know, sort of standing, you know, a, a few few yards from uh, Mr. Garcia's feet. It was an outstanding experience. This next one's dedicated to all you socks back there at the bar. I want you to think it over. The Lyceum, because I was much closer to the stage, it was a more intimate thing. But they just look like they lived on the stage. There's just a level of relaxation and amusement and, you know, having a great time. And, yeah, it was, it was a, again, a different sort of feel than I'd got, ever got from any other, any other band. Andy Childs had spent a lot of time thinking about the dead before he got to see them. All the band members came from very different musical backgrounds. And that was something that was new because, you know, you look at UK bands, at rock bands, they all met at art college or they all came from like similar backgrounds. And for a rock band like that to consist of members that came from classical music background, uh, 
folk, country, bluegrass. I mean, that was quite unique. And it kind of, it reflected in the music. It was something I read about called, um, it was called Dissonant Counterpoint. And when I looked, when I heard Live Dead, that did it for me because Dark Star is the epitome of that. And it's that record I had to play six times, seven times. And every time I heard it, it sounded different because I was listening to something different in the, in the mix. And it was, it was a great example of loads of different styles coming together that shouldn't have worked. They were all different. It shouldn't have actually coalesced the way they did, but they did. And I was really looking forward to hearing that at the Lyceum, and, and they didn't disappoint. I mean, it was just amazing. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. The whole experience of the Lyceum kind of confirmed what I thought was great about the band. And it was just totally different from from any UK rock gig that you would go to at the time. Very, very different, very different. I mean, it was eclectic. It was relaxed, very friendly, and just the whole range of material that they that they covered. It was very exciting. I put those shows down as as in my top half dozen shows I've ever seen. Their sound was so different and their competence on stage was so advanced compared to, and, and their relaxed nature on stage. It was like, you know, it was like a party going on on stage in a way. But the sound, the sound, there was a clarity to the sound that you didn't hear with your typical English bands, you know, the Claptons or indeed the Hendrixes or what have you. Um, who were playing through you know, martial amplification, which tends to distort rather than the beautiful Macintosh PA of the Dead had and you know, their sort of Fender-based guitar amplification. The sound and the way that they approached the gig was like, again, it was different from anything that anybody had ever really, uh, re really seen before. And I think people forget perhaps just amongst the, the, the enormous musical talent in the band, just how good they sounded and how great they looked. You know, like I said earlier, like they live on stage. The Grateful Dudes will be celebrating Europe 72 this summer at the event Playing on the Farm. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. The Dead also caught two tracks for Europe 72 on the second night at the Lyceum. The first had been in their repertoire pretty much continuously since 1966, the definition of an old standby. Here's how It Hurts Me Too sounded on November 10, 1967 at the Shrine in L.A., now on the 30 Trips Around the Sun box set. You said you was hurting, almost lost your mind, cost a man. 
not too different from Europe 72 in some ways, besides the moodiness of the two drummers. But I also think Pigpen had pretty clearly become a better singer by 1972, and the band had gotten better as well. I love the little handoff from Garcia's feedback to Keith Godshow's piano while Pig is singing here. You love him a little more when you should love him less. Why pick up behind and take his Pigpen almost certainly learned it from Elmore James, who credited himself as the author of the song, and who released his version in 1957 with the Broomdusters. You say you're fighting, you almost lost your mind. The man you love, he hurts you all the time. When things go wrong, go wrong with you. With that, it were so simple. The story of It Hurts Me Too iterates fascinatingly when traced in reverse and reveals an interesting Europe 72 connection. 17 years before Elmore James's version of It Hurts Me Too, in 1940, Tampa Red recorded a song with the same name, same melody, and some of the same words. I can't be happy, mama, for being so blue When you keep on worrying the way you do when things go wrong, so wrong with you, it hurts me too. But Tampa Red's song, It Hurts Me Too, was an update on a song he'd first recorded 11 years before that in 1929, the slide guitar instrumental, You Got to Reap What You Sow. that sounds familiar, it should. Besides It Hurts Me Too, You Got to Reap What You Sow was the apparent origin point for several other songs on the blues family tree, and perhaps a melody going around previously. On one branch, the melody evolved into Robert Johnson's Come On In My Kitchen. On another, it became Sitting On Top Of The World, a masterpiece by the great string band The Mississippi Sheiks. Which you may know as Side A, Track 5 of the first Grateful Dead LP. To summarize, two songs in the Dead's early repertoire, It Hurts Me Too and Sitting on Top of the World, seemingly derive from the same common tune. Coincidentally, the Dead had just brought Sitting on Top of the World back into the repertoire for the final time a few nights earlier in Munich, 
and they'd play it on the first and third nights at the Lyceum, the last two versions of the song ever played by the band. Bummer. Sorry, Dallas, so. Come back, baby, you know I need you so. for that matter. The version of It Hurts Me Too on the second night of the Lyceum, included on Europe 72, was the last version they ever played. A few songs later in the first set, the dead caught another song for Europe 72. The news is Originally by Hank Williams, that was the fifth and final take of You Win Again, recorded for Europe 72. Requiring no overdubs, it was perhaps the most no-fuss, no-must tune of the project. No versions were pulled for the tour-end mixes, and there doesn't seem to be a surviving track sheet, apparently a semi-spontaneous inclusion on the album. Introduced into the Dead's repertoire in the fall of 1971, it was gone by less than a year later, with a few performances in 75, by the early iteration of the Jerry Garcia Band. You Win Again is, of course, one of the most legendary of all country songs. The news is out all over town That you've been seen running around I know that I should leave but I just can't go you win again. According to Hank Williams, the biography by Colin Escott, George Merritt, and William McEwen, the song was originally titled I Lose Again, with a new title suggested by producer Fred Rose when Williams recorded it in the summer of 1952, the day after his divorce was finalized. It was an instant standard. Gilman dropped us a lovely story about the Lyceum shows at stories.dead.net, which we'll use to end our look at night two. In late May 72, approaching the end of my first year at Oxford, I went with three fellow students to see the dead play at the Lyceum on the Strand in central London. I've no idea which night of the week it was, and so I can listen to tracks from all four concerts and feel myself there. As we started the drive home, surely in a state of euphoria, we turned the wrong way down Pall Mall 
then a one-way street. It nearly crashed into a large bus. Both vehicles came to a rapid stop happily with no actual collision. As we got out of our Mini, we saw amazingly that it was the tour bus, with members of the band amongst those leaning out the windows, openable in those days. We shouted to them how much we'd enjoyed the concert, and all was going swimmingly, until a police car appeared, much to our consternation. Pigpen climbed down to see what was going on, and perhaps somebody else too, but I just remember Pigpen. Fortunately, the officers were friendly enough. Did we benefit from being Oxford undergraduates at a time when there were fewer university students in the UK? Undoubtedly. Did we apologise profusely and claim we were unfamiliar with London's roads? Probably. Did Pigpen speak up for us? Possibly. The police let us off and departed and we headed back. Almost 50 years on, it seems unlikely that anyone on the bus would recall that moment, but it's certainly a memory for me. The Dead didn't catch any of Europe 72 on the third night of the Lyceum, Thursday the 25th of May, but it was hardly uneventful, especially for those who attended. John Kiefer had seen the band in April at Empire Pool. As soon as I could, I bought a ticket for my girlfriend and I to go to the Lyceum a few weeks later. And May 25th at the Lyceum was my second Grateful Dead show. So after being blown away by the Empire Pool show a few weeks before, I had in the meantime used all my birthday money and a chunk of my wages on American Beauty and a pricey import copy of Skull and Roses from Richard Branson's first Virgin store. The Lyceum was a great venue and much more intimate at 2000 than the Empire Pool. If I wasn't nearly there already, this concert made me a dead fan for life. It would be the last time they played a number of songs, mainly one sung by Pigpen. Big balls, man. Can't you help me when I call? Goodbye to Big Boss Man, revived by Garcia in the 80s. And goodbye to Good Lovin', revived by Weir in 76. The last version with Pigpen doesn't have a freestyle, but it does have Jerry Garcia on B3 for the last time. Can you tell me what's ailing me? He said, All I need, all I need, all I need, It also has a jam that gets pretty deep. set of the 25th of May show is also the last time one of my favorite things happened. Broke down Palace with a combination of Keith Godcho's piano and Pigpen's B3 organ.
Giles. The Thursday night of that was the 25th, so the, the <laughs> penultimate gig. They ended as they were doing, generally doing then, the first set with Casey Jones. And again, just talking about sound clarity, when they get to the final choruses that repeat, you know, driving that train, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the guy on the soundboard, you know, whatever, was just cranking up the amp every time. Uh, they get through a new, new verse and it just gets louder. And, and I'm sure they did that. They're sure they did that everywhere. But I mean, it's just something I remember that, that this thing was getting so goddamn loud that, you know, and, and it was totally clear. And it was, you know, I mean, the fact that I remember, I remember that happening, deeply impressioned uh, uh, experience. The second set had an unusual jam sequence with Uncle John's band melting into a gentle space. Reformulating dramatically into Warfrat. Chris Jones. And I went to the first three shows and then I ran out of money and I couldn't afford to, to go to the last one, which was a real, real bummer. And I've regretted it ever since. But I think uh, I did, did OK. And he did tape the shows, which is pretty excellent, too, because then Warfrat drifted into that special place. through this 11th and final dark star of Europe 72. Please welcome back Graham Boone. Warfrat transitioning into dark star is such a powerful move and feeling. They don't even play the tag. Jerry just started in on his riff and they're into it. With that feeling of Warfrat in the background, this is a slow and pensive beginning. Chris Jones. I got to see my second Dark Star on the Thursday. And one of the things about the Lyceum Ballroom, I don't know if anybody has said this, is that the um, had a roof which rolled back. And while they were playing Dark Star, looking up, um, was it was it Dark Star? Was it the other one? It was might have been the other one, but it was it was a spacey magical trip looking out and see the stars just a little black square in the ceiling and the stars above and it was just absolutely magical and 
I think they had to do it to let all the fumes out, you know, let let the let the smoke and the incense and whatever else that that happened. That really happened. A lot of things I've forgotten, but that is true. Andy Childs. The Lyceum had a retractable roof, and the uh, the atmosphere got a bit smoky in there for a, a while, and so they opened the roof <laughs> to let the, the scent out. <laughs> The roof was kind of domed, I think, maybe. There was a small part of it in the middle, and that just kind of opened up as a, you know, as a dome. So it wasn't the whole roof. You know, I'll never forget that. It was quite nice because then, you know, you saw the stars coming in, and it was kind of a magic moment, really, in a way. You know, it was kind of perfect. It was certainly open that night. I think it was on the Thursday night, the last night that I was there, and it opened, and it was absolutely amazing that, that it happened. I mean, it just felt... Just right. I mean, May is not always warm in this country, but we were hot, we were warm, and to open the thing then was, was absolutely superb. And I don't know whether someone pointed it out to me or whether I was just sort of laying out flat on the floor, zonked out of my box. And anyway, I noticed it and it was it was it was great. Beautiful sense of hovering. You can hear everybody just adding little bits and pieces to this moment. Fill back on A and creating a sense of center, but always in movement. They would go in a huddle, you know, they would look at each other and they'd be looking at what each other was doing. And, and it was that kind of playing off each other in a very intimate way, you know, which again, you know, Never seen a rock band do that. Never seen anything like that before. So the band is in a very spacey mode here for a minute. And then Jerry hits this note. Listen to Jerry's note. And then Bob hits a note. And through feedback, they just hold on to these notes. So Lesh playing his growling bass. Wide open, deep space. Bill's dropped out. Keith has dropped out. Fill in those two notes chords, those dyadic monster chords in the bass. Phil always seemed to me to be the one that kind of took the lead when it came to where these jams would go and where, and it was almost like jazz. Because they're all melodies he plays. He doesn't play with ordinary bass lines, he plays melodies. So they just go off and, and the rest of the band follow. And I always thought he was really probably, I mean, you, you can't discount the contribution of any of the band members, but I always thought that he was particularly important and, and not many people really had written about that. Andy would. In ZigZag, he would write of the shows, I was given irrevocable proof to support my theory that Phil Lash is a genius beyond all shadow of a doubt. He was pushing out endless boulder-like notes 
that form the base and cornerstone of the whole sound. Beautiful imaginative riffs during tightly arranged numbers, and when they stretched out, veering off the road to God knows where, it was pure counterpoint at its very best. I'll never forget one particular instance where the band had worked themselves into a piece that trained students of the game would probably describe as electric chamber music, and Lesh was completely and utterly in control of the whole thing, crouched next to his amp and playing his bass high up on the neck, gradually stabilizing all the many different melodies and rhythms flying around him, and then leading them off somewhere else completely. Phil Lesh at the height of his creativity. That's not an experience you treat lightly. Andy's Profile of the Dead, A Three-Part History, was published in Zigzag over the course of 1973. And shortly after that, I became the editor of Zigzag, so um, I think it might have been instrumental. It also helped him score an interview with Phil Lesh the next time the dead came through London, a topic we'll have to save for another day. Bill Giles. You know, down the front, and there was a guy behind me with his girlfriend. And I just remember this conversation, or I just remember him saying, it, it, it's all right, they'll get back to playing music in a while, or words to that effect. And this was during what is actually really quite a difficult dark star. I mean, they sort of rather, I had some sympathy because they sort of, they did rather, they'd rather lose their way. They found it. Really nice bits from everybody. And there, Phil pops into his feeling groovy. And listen to that tremolo effect on Bob's guitar. You know, Jerry's not standing on top. He's just grooving with his bandmates. And then he starts coming out. As always, Bill underpinning the whole jam. And as usual, you have this pause of four bars, and then coming back. And we'll fade out the last Europe 72 Dark Star with a tiny bit that anticipates the feel of Eyes of the World, debuted eight months later. Thanks, Graham Boone, for all the celestial navigation. This dark star re-enters local gravity in the same way that a half dozen previous dark stars on Europe 72 do. gone from Dark Star into Sugar Magnolia a few times before the Europe 72 tour, and would do so a few times after. But I think of it as the quintessential Europe 72 Dark Star transition. Chris Jones. Seeing the dead six times in the space of less than two months, um, that's, that's, that's quite a lot. They um, really so impressed me with their musicianship, the dedication of, of playing for those sort of long hours, as I said, all the freebies they gave, the atmosphere that they engendered, 
It was just an absolutely marvellous experience for a very young man. John Kiefer. Actually, the vibe was so friendly and relaxed. It was not like being at a concert at all, more like an outdoor festival, but inside a faded Rococo ballroom. I've been listening to a lot of jazz, Coltrane, Miles, etc., and electronic music as a teenager. And I remember being amazed one minute at the Dead's improvisations while next minute being drawn into great songs like Warfrat and then dancing like an idiot with my girlfriend to Sugar Magnolia. There certainly is nothing like a Grateful Dead concert. We're at the end of the second one, I think, and they seemed to go on for hours and hours, which, and you'd come out into Covent Garden in the early hours of the morning and because there was a, a, a fruit and vegetable market at Covent Garden at the time, and all the workers would be coming in to, <laughs> going to work, you know, coming into work in the morning while we were coming out of the Lyceum. It was quite funny. The final night of the tour, the last of the Lyceum shows, has long been voted an all-time favorite by Deadheads. And it was an instant all-timer for Alan Arkish, who'd seen virtually every classic Dead set at the Fillmore East while working there. The last one is one of my top five favorite Grateful Dead shows of all time. And I think you can tell on the recording. There's an energy to it. And it's true. It was another deeply electrified night. Stories abound about the touring party making a valiant and sometimes not so valiant attempt to finish off their collective LSD supply. Courtney Pollock and his lady friend met up with the tour for the Lyceum shows. This actually could have happened on any of the earlier nights, but we'll use it to set the mood. We went uh, and met up as a band again in London for the, the last gigs over there. Courtney and I were in the same hotel with the band and we go to the gig. And actually, it was Candelario, Kid Candelario, uh, we ran into first. We were on stage, you know, uh, I was checking equipment and, you know, tie-dyes. I got Victoria with me. And he, he's like, hey, you you guys uh, want to drop? Or whatever he said. And sure. So he gives us a squeeze out of the murine bottle because it was dissolved in murine under the guise of eyedroppers, of course. Previously on the dead cast... We heard about how Courtney had avoided the Paris megadosing because he came with his own supply of window pane. He did not avoid such a fate in London. And she and I both got absolutely blitzed. All visual and sound just became a morass of fragmentia. You know, light became shards of broken glass. There was no, you couldn't see anything. And all sound was disjointed. And it was absolutely hellacious. You know, and I just knew it was going to be a number several hours. We just had to ride it out until we came down and up. Yeah. And it also had speed in it. You know, it was just not a cool thing. In small doses, it was probably really good for, uh, you know, getting, setting up equipment, breaking down at the end of the night, you know, keeping that thread of energy going, you know. But if you take too much, you, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't see, you couldn't hear properly. You know, it was just hours before we could actually start to make head or tail of it. I quickly found a, a little spot backstage where we could just hunker down and ride it out. The Dead's family weren't the only ones going all out. Jeremy Poynton. When we hit the road from Oxford, me and some friends from college hired a van to go down to the Lyceum. I think we managed the first show and the last show, being impoverished students. I got to Wembley and been blown away, got to Bickershaw and been blown away and covered in mud. Absolutely perfect. The shows were spectacular. The acid we had was absolutely spectacular. Glorious days. 
back on the planetary surface, the show got going. Opening up were the new riders of the Purple Sage. A tape has long circulated of their set, but turns out it was from one of the other nights. New Riders archivist Rob Leitstein recently discovered the real 26th of May set. It will be released this fall by Omnivore Recordings. Here's a sneak preview of Dirty Business. Please dig Buddy Cage's Sweet Petal Steel. And then, once more, it was time for the Grateful Dead. Writer Ken Hunt. The Lyceum was a much more intimate venue. It was a, a very European audience. People had traveled from across Europe. There was none of the, the stuff which I despise, uh, which was people calling out Jerry and, and Grateful Dead. And I just thought, no, I don't need that in my ears. I just want to hear the music. Uh, so there was none of that at, the, at either of the concerts I went to. The night would not only yield four songs and two extended jams for the officially released version of Europe 72, but another five performances made it to the end-of-tour mixes for album consideration. Along with China Cat Sunflower in the first set, it also included three of Pigpen's performances in the first set. The first was Mr. Charlie. Chuba, 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 bowling, 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 Another was The Stranger, the only version from the tour pulled as a potential keeper. I'm a stranger in your town. Help me somebody, please. I went to in the morning. You know, you know, I'm in a Last was Chinatown Shuffle. song Pigpen would sing with the Grateful Dead. They would be the final performances of all three songs, which still sucks. There's one moment that many remember about the first set. Bill Giles. 
and the specific memory from from that was that uh, end of the first set, towards the end of the first set, I think they'd done China Rider, and you know they were going, they would probably have done as they had done most 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 of the shows, Casey Jones as the as the set one closer. And anyway, it's a pause after after China Rider, a bit of dead air. They were thinking what to do, and then the audience starts clapping the Bo Diddley beat. So you've got the audience going. Mm-hmm. The lovely thing about the Lyceum is when you get the audience feeding the band. And the audience, and I was one of them, we started clapping a rhythm. Remember Phil Lesh's encounter with the Danish crowd back at the beginning of the tour? See, uh, you know what? We're going to keep on playing. You don't have to clap like that. But you can if you want to. If you want to I mean, clap, go ahead. Go ahead, get it on. But we won't do one in that tempo, you know, necessarily. You can if you want to, but you don't have to if you don't want to. You can do whatever you want. But don't get sucked into it now. Tonight they would. On the band, you see the band on the stage, and they're everyone's sort of looking at one another in amazement and laughing and chuckling and all the rest of it. And you know they know what they have to do, uh, which is. Play not fade away, and that's what they do. And they they picked up on the rhythm, and you get a, a shot from sounds like Kreutzmann, and they go into not fade away. I don't know how often the dead did that sort of stuff, but it was a you know a special moment. I won't say it was magical, but it was a special moment. Concludes, you know, with uh, the help of the audience inspiration, with uh, not fade away, going into and um, going down the road. And that was a great little. That was just a great moment of, you know, band and crowd interaction uh, without a word being spoken. In later years, it would become a semi-regular ritual for the audience to start up the rhythm and pass it to the band. But the Lyceum show is a magical, totally spontaneous early instance. It happened at least one other time, on November 8, 1970, at the Capitol Theater in Portchester, of course. But there's still plenty of missing tapes. Alan Arkish. Not Fade Away is awesome. The give and take on Not Fade Away between Jerry's playing and Bob's singing is very Chuck Berry-like and very on it. It's like really strong rock and roll fills. It was a warm and fuzzy way to end the first set. 
Because for the dad's extended family, set break was utter chaos. Sam Cutler. And it was a, oh man, another one. It was a stonking high gig. And uh, my mother wanted to come and see what this band was like, you know, who this band was, the Grateful Dead. So I sent, I organized a car to bring her and her husband to the gig. And she sat in the balcony next to Healy, who was mixing the music. Everybody was completely stoned. And uh, I suddenly wrote, oh, yeah, my fucking, it was the, like the break, you know, we were having a break. And I, oh, my mother's up there. I better go and get her. So I, I, I went and got her, right? I said, come down to the dressing room and say hello to Jerry, right? Which was a great mistake. So this little old English lady took her down to the dressing room and everybody's in the dressing room all smoking joints and completely out of it. My mother looked like she just stepped into the middle of like Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, I took her up to Garcia and Garcia kind of, you know, peered over his glasses at her like that. And I said, oh, Jerry, this is my mother. So he looked at her. I didn't like that. And he goes, I didn't know you had a mother. <laughs> this is what Jerry said. My mother didn't take kindly to that. And then she goes, she says to him something like, you know what? This music is far too loud. It's positively dangerous. Do you know, don't you realize that it can, you know, injure people? You can destroy their hearing, blah, 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 blah. blah. You know what I mean? I managed to get her out of there and she went home. She, she couldn't stand it any longer. So that was that. So that was, yeah, that was that gig, man, that ended at like 3.30 in the morning instead of the 11 o'clock that the manager demanded. Wiz had an entertaining set break. When we were in Germany, we went to a toy store and bought these really, really high-quality full-face masks. And I had a Punch, a Punch and Judy one. And I had a lot of hair, and, you know, I could pull my hair back, put the mask on, and then kind of pull my hair around the mask, and, you know, it was cool. <laughs> anyway, you know, I was talking about the other masks that we had. The band wore them at one point during the last Lyceum gig. Wiz went to get a drink in the Warner Brothers promotional box, where, thanks to one of the other quippies, the company's representatives had gotten dosed. So, set break. I put the punch mask on, <laughs> and I'd go up there, and people see me walk in, and all of a sudden, everybody's on the other side of the box, you know, cowering. <laughs> and I didn't think, you know, I like just thought, oh, shit, I don't want to fuck these guys over, so I pulled the mask off, and it must have looked like a ripped face off. <laughs> Many years later, Wiz and Candace Brightman reunited on the touring crew for Phil Lesh and Friends, and, as happens, the topic of Europe 72 came up, and eventually the masked night at the Lyceum. And we started talking about that, and Candace, her jaw drops, and she looks at me and says, they were masks? What are you talking about? I thought I was hallucinating. I said, no, they put masks on for us. <laughs> and we laughed. Then it was time to get down to the evening's business. Drop the needle on LP3 of Europe 72, and you'll hear the beginning of set two from night four at the Lyceum. The crowd knows what's coming. The Dead's sixth show in London in two months. Of course, by now I need to tell you that this, this next number rose straight to the top of the charts in Turlock, California. Numero uno and stayed there for a week or two. They love us in Turlock, and we love them for that. Far be it from the Deadcast to leave Weir's Turlock claim like that alone. It's sometimes suggested that it's a band in-joke related to a gig a few years earlier in Turlock, 
But the thing is, it actually sounds like a plausible claim to me. In the 70s, it wasn't uncommon for small towns to have their own local music charts, often just ads in the paper sponsored by a local record store or radio station. And Truckin' does appear on at least one such chart, just after the time Weir started using that piece of pattern in late 71. The archives of the Turlock Daily Journal aren't yet digitized, unfortunately. I contacted the paper via current reporter Chris Correa, who queried some of the old schoolers at the publication. None of them remember a local music chart, but I know firsthand how difficult it can be to research between multiverses, and I'd still love to get some dead freak eyeballs on late 1970 and 1971 editions of the Turlock Daily Journal. But anywho... Of course, The Dead recorded Truckin' less than two years earlier, when it became the closing song on American Beauty. We went way into Truckin' during our season-closing episode from that season, so we ask you to please point your podcast player to that for a deeper history. But to recount briefly, the original conception of Truckin' was a bit different. Most of the cats that you meet on the street people do love. Most of the time the demo for Truckin' from the expanded Angel Share edition of American Beauty, available on a streaming service near you. The song beefed up considerably over its first year and change of live performances, but it was only just before the Europe 72 tour that the song developed a proper jam. a version from March 26th at the Academy in New York, just before the band's departure for London, and the first truckin' to really cruise the Cosmic Highway, cracking open to 18 minutes. The tour ending version in London was Take 18, played most nights of the tour, and got to a pretty out place as well. Lyceum, Truckin' unfolded into a one-hour, ten-minute sequence, segueing into the other one, into Morning Dew, back into the other one, and on into Sing Me Back Home. For the album, it was edited judiciously down to less than half that, a disc-long piece of music that begins with Truckin' and ends with Morning Dew. At Alembic, Weir, Garcia, and Lesh overdub new vocals on July 31st. 
trucking. Got my chips cashed in and keep trucking. Like the dude I'm man together. More or less in line. Just keep trucking. On the official album, the truck and outro was retitled Epilogue and made into its own track. There are no edits, but it did earn Keith Godcho his first publishing credit on a Grateful Dead album, fading just as it starts to melt into the other one. One person who had a fascinating perspective on the Dead's jamming on the Europe 72 tour is Dennis Wizard Leonard, who watched the entire tour through a tiny black and white monitor in the recording truck. One of my favorite things musically, and I, I could see this through the black and white monitor, is a lot of time Jerry would be playing kind of with his head down and other band members would just be on their instruments and they would telegraph things to each other for transitions without even visual contact. There was something yeah. extraordinary going on, and it wasn't just the music. These guys were so in touch with each other that I think that something as subtle as the speed of a bend could telegraph something. There was still plenty of excitement in the recording truck on the last night of the tour. In Amsterdam, I had found and had it for quite a while in an antique shop, a real human skull, by them there. And it was, it lived on top of the 13-inch monitor for a while. And that was like right under a laughing jack flag that was the backdrop uh, between the um, two JBL monitors. Early in the second set, Joe Smith comes out to the truck. Legendary Warner Brothers president Joe Smith in the house. And he kind of like, you know, like, you know, there was a funky staircase that we carried to get in there. And he says, do you guys mind if I hang out here? I think I'm high. Betty and I looked at him and said, no problem. Just relax, man. And Joe sits down and, you know, he's like listening. And he starts to look at the 12-inch, 15-inch monitor. And he glances up and says, uh, that, that, that's a real human skull, uh. And I said, yeah, Joe, it is. I'm going to go back inside now. <laughs> Did the Dead's crew finally dose Joe Smith? Not likely. Smith never met a story he couldn't tell, and it was a story he never told. Did they dose themselves? Enthusiastically. We were all really, really, really high for the last show of the tour. The tape box for the set reads, We're all really stoned now. A little bit later into the second set, Due to circumstances, Wizard found himself alone in the Alembic truck. Dennis McNally featured a version of this story in his official band biography, Long Strange Trip. But I love hearing Wizard tell it. Betty comes over to me at my end of the truck, and she's like high as shit. And says, Are you, is, this, is it okay? I said, yeah, it's okay. We're rolling. We're in record. It sounds good. She 
said, could you listen? And I go over to, she had a little uh, uh, two-track set up at the end of the truck. I had the multi-track at the other end. And I listen to the mix, and it sounds good, and I solo each track, and everything's there. And I said, it's all great. She said, are you sure? And then she looks at me and says, are we in record? Oh. I said, Betty, not only are we in record, but we're in playback. So what we're hearing has already happened. And that time stuck with her head. And she said, oh, God. And I said, Betty, why don't you go inside? We had just changed tape. We had an hour and a half pack of tape uh, per big reel. And so Wiz was alone in the recording truck. You may have heard a version of this part in Amir Bar-Lev's Long Strange Trip documentary. But here's a slightly more jammed out version. I'm sitting there, you know, like, high as shit, but, I, you know, I spent time on the prankster buses. I, I, I could talk to cops and change the tires on the bus while I was completely high. It was required. And um, I'm feeling both great and at the same time a little sad because it was the 22nd show, the last of the tour, and I had not been inside for one song even Uh and as a you know as a young hippie deadhead i had always wanted to see what was behind the green curtain and now i was there and i realized you know there's no going back to kansas on this this is where i am this is where i'll be and it is okay and i felt great you know like holy shit I was like a hippie seven months ago, and now these guys trust me enough to just be alone in the truck and deal with recording the band. And it felt great. Parrish calls me on the intercom and says, hey, fuckhead. What, Steve? He said, one of the RE20s on the piano cabinet's drooping or something like that. You know, it's just a mic clip. Can you please stick a coin in it and tighten it up? Fuck you, that's not my, you know, Steve. And I realized, holy shit. Nobody's here. I can't get in touch with anybody. And they were jamming. And, you know, the dynamics were pretty subdued. I'm running inside to fix this mic clip. I locked the truck. As I close the door, the truck is, like, vibrating at me. It's going to be okay. And uh, I go inside, stick a coin in the mic clip, tighten it up, look at Parrish and sneer, and I start to walk off stage, and they drop into Morning Dew. tune you know i knew which wasn't going to have outrageous dynamics had an hour hour 15 minutes tape left on the machine and i figured what the fuck i am staying right here for this tune walk me out in the morning do my
stage center-ish. There was a backstage monitor. I walked past that, was right behind Garcia's rig. Garcia looked at me and, like, smiled a funny cherry smile because, you know, like, what the fuck are you doing in here? And I hung out for the tune. I can't walk out in the morning We'll let Wizard Watch Morning Dew, take four, used on Europe 72, while we steer briefly into the history of Morning Dew. Of course, Morning Dew began side B of the dead self-titled 1967 debut. Sounds a little different. The song, originally about the world after nuclear fallout, was written and recorded by Canadian songwriter Bonnie Dobson in 1962 at the height of the Cold War, released on her live at Folk City LP. This is a song about morning dew, and I hope that it never falls on us. On the Dead's album, Morning Dew is credited to songwriters Bonnie Dobson and Tim Rose. We'll let music scholar Ken Hunt address this. Not only was he present for the Europe 72 version of the Lyceum, but he's now friends with Bonnie Dobson herself. There were all sorts of rights grabs, rights grabs going on. One of the rights grabs was Morning Dew. When Bon wrote Morning Dew, the first person who really got to tackle it was Fred Neal. And Fred was honourable. He changed a word and didn't claim a third. Now, when Tony Rose comes along, the bastard claims jumps it. And it took Bonnie years to extricate herself from that. He was very underhand. So I use that derogatory term for him advisedly. The song was an instant hit among the folk revivalists, popularized largely by the 1964 Fred Neal and Vince Martin version which is where Jerry Garcia picked it up. Walk me out in the morning, do my honey. Walk me out in the morning, do today. Can't walk you out in the morning, do. In the five years between the song's original release and The Dead's debut, it was performed by the West Coast pop art experimental band, Lulu, the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart, Mythology featuring Tony Iommi and Bill Ward, and more. Thought I heard a baby cry this morning. 
original vocal for Morning Dew at the Lyceum, with just a touch of sourness in Garcia's voice. Fixed in the mix. Here's how it sounded on the final version of the song. If you listen closely, you can hear the ghost of the original vocal. I thought I heard That was actually the very last piece of music recorded for Europe 72, overdubbed on September 1st. But only the vocals on the first part of the song were redone. After the first solo, they're live. Listen to his vocals wonderfully. Like Some of his vocals are throwaway. He was so off mic, but they did not overdub those away. And, you know, he was really there. He was totally committed to... Pure emotion playing down his arms. It just blew my mind. Most of the earlier versions of Morning Dew by other artists end like this, with the refrain, Now there's no more Morning Dew. Here's how Lulu does it. I love this version. There's one thing all of the earlier versions are missing, though. As near as I can tell, the lyric, I guess it doesn't matter anyway, doesn't appear in any recorded version of Morning Dew before the Grateful Dead debuted theirs in early 1967. If that's true, I think it's very likely it constitutes an original lyric by Jerry Garcia. I guess it does Sustained. 
looked up at him, and in mid-solo, there were tears streaming down his face. Oh, man. And honestly, every time I think about it, I go back there. It's moments in time that I, I'll never forget. Jeremy Poynton. The last night was an absolute and utter gem, and I can only think of Wiz talking about not being in the recording van and watching Jerry, tears pouring out down his eyes as he played Morning Dew. Jerry was not alone in the audience, I can tell you. I was weeping my heart out. I still weep my heart out for Jerry. It was truly a rich sequence of music. Sing Me Back Home made it to the tour ending reels. some things that they gave three stars to but that song was not the song title was not actually included in europe 72 so in the sing me back home sing me back home was was given three stars but i think they wanted to put one big jerry sung ballad on the album we've got them now watch out next week when we post the complete list of post-tour mixes but they certainly weren't done recording for europe 72 debuted Ramble on Rose at the beginning of their long fall 71 tour. Here's a bit of the third ever version, October 22nd, 1971 in Chicago, from Dave's Picks 3. Just like Billy Sunday in a shotgun A few clicks faster, but there were virtually no differences, either musically or lyrically, between Ramble on Rose as it was introduced and Ramble on Rose as it was recorded. In its early years, Garcia reserved the song for the second set, generally the heavier part of the show, for when the band was properly warmed up. It certainly wasn't a ballad or anything remotely heavy, but perhaps something colorful to catch people at their most levitated. Here's what Robert Hunter told David Gans about Ramble on Rose in 1977, published in David's great book Conversations with the Dead. I think Ramble on Rose is the closest to, to complete whimsy I've come up with. That was another one that I sat down and wrote numerous verses to. 
came up with them just that all tied around. Did you say your name was Ramblin' Rose? Ramble on, baby. <laughs> Settle down easy, G. It fit. But your version of complete whimsy might differ slightly from Robert Hunter's notion of the same thing. A spew of images from the American subconscious, linked by a flower, the rambling rose, perfect for winding through other plants or through the bars of a trellis or a pergola. A conceptual continuation in some ways of the American beauty that titled their 1970 album. But one of the dead's most American songs began with the invocation of a British character. Just like Jack the Ripper. The true identity of Jack the Ripper, a British serial killer who brutally preyed on sex workers in London's East End, remains unknown. Just like hand. A term out of blues culture, and more specifically black culture, with origins in West Africa, a mojo hand was a flannel bag carrying various spiritual tools. It turns up lots in blues and R&B, and the Dead's own song, Caution. Why you need? Why you need? Why you need? In the context of Ramble on Rose, the concept of the mojo hand almost sounds a bit anthropomorphized, as if it were a member of the song's dream blunt rotation. Just like Billy Sunday in a shotgun break Billy Sunday played eight seasons in Major League Baseball, debuting with the Chicago Cubs in 1888 before becoming arguably the most prominent early 20th century Christian evangelist. I didn't want our boys to die drunkards that I fought and fight. I'm going to live long enough to see America so dry, you have to prime a man before he can spit, and I'll fight the saloon from Hawaii to Hoboken, and I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot, and I'll fight it as punch it as long as I have a fist, I'll butt it as long as I have a head, I'll bite it as long as I have a tooth, and when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and hit goes home to perdition. And by dream blunt rotation, I mean a real dream, where you end up hanging out with bizarre characters and can't quite escape. Just like New York City. One of my favorite little details about Ramble on Rose is that, starting in the later 70s, nearly whenever and wherever the dead played it, the line, just like New York City, would likely get a big cheer. Further testament to the centrality of Manhattan to the deadhead universe. Here it is on November 30th, 1980, at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Now Dave's picks eight. What's up, Fox Danners? Nicholas Merriweather. There's a cyclical feel to it. It almost feels like it borrows from the same kind of cyclicality that you hear in Truckin' first. But Truckin' is serious, and Truckin' is autobiographical. Whereas Ramble on Rose, you get more of a sense of, it's the same sense of, of sort of folky cyclicality, but now it's not really tethered to anything, you know, deeper and more ambitious. It really is just Hunter's classic sense of wordplay. It's, it's got an element of whimsy to it, but it's also got an element of, you know, look at the catalog of images that he presents in there. There's really deep, basic stuff. This is the way that Hunter sees American history. This is the way that Hunter sees the American song bag. It's got serious literary teeth in it. If China Clap Sunflower is nothing but pure whimsy, Ramble on Rose is kind of whimsy with a purpose. The song is dense with illusions and will point you to dead.net slash deadcast, 
where we've linked to David Dodd's annotated Ramble on Rose from his annotated Grateful Dead lyrics site, which further teases out connections between all of these. Along with items from early 20th century popular culture, the song features proverbs, biblical references, and nursery rhymes. Just like Jack and Jim Papa told the jailer Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. kind of sound like a pretty weird dream. As musicologists might note, though, Ramble on Rose doesn't contain anything like actual ragtime, besides the vague flirtations of Keith Godshow's piano. It does, however, have a few lyrical references to Irving Berlin's 1911 global hit Alexander's Ragtime Band, which, like Ramble on Rose, doesn't contain much by way of actual ragtime either. Here heard sung in 1912 by Billy Murray. You buy the hand up to the man, the funny man, who's the leader of the band. And if you care to hear the Swanee River played in ragtime, come on and hear, come on and hear Alexander's ragtime band. There was a little more ragtime buried further down. Just like Depending who you ask, it seems likely that Crazy Otto is a reference to the piano player and ragtime revivalist Johnny Maddox, who had a 1955 instrumental hit with the Crazy Otto medley, a cover of a German artist named Schrager Otto. Which means that, buried inside this very American piece of music, is a triple-nested invocation, an American taking their musical identity from a German pianist playing American ragtime. The next lyric probably doesn't need much explanation for many American listeners. Just like Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack was one of North America's preeminent pirate DJs, beaming forth with his distinct gravelly voice from the so-called Clear Channel, XERB. XERB moves up! This is 50,000 Watt Clear Channel XERB, Radio North America, Central Studios, Los Angeles, 1090 on your dial. Hey, baby, welcome on in here to the Wolfman Jack Show for a Tuesday night. In 1973, Wolfman Jack would begin to cross over into the mainstream with a role in George Lucas's American Graffiti. But to British audiences in 1972, he was a mystery. There were lots of new songs that, you know, never heard. Um, 
And, um, you know, so by the end of the four nights at the Lyceum, we'd heard most of them a couple of times and, you know, we're getting a bit more familiar. They were, I thought, intriguing and had, you know, fascinating lyrics. So, as I said, it was the sort of Tennessee Jed, brown-eyed women, ramble on rows that um, I started thinking. And they're sort of fascinating and references because that then um, brings out, gets sort of Wolfman Jack, who on earth is Wolfman Jack. The allusion to these songs inspired Alex to start whitegum.com, the brilliant Grateful Dead lyrics site. The verse ended with a reference that was likewise pretty American. Sit flush with a Like many card games, poker had ancient origins, but the modern 52-card deck and rules can be traced to New Orleans, where it spread by way of the Mississippi River. It's since gone global thanks to satellite television and the internet, but like the robes, it was a key piece of Robert Hunter's imagery. The last bits of Ramble on Rose are more British. Just like Mary Shelley. Of course, Frankenstein was the doctor, and Mary Shelley the author, co-creators of the monster that lived rent-free in Jerry Garcia's imagination and surely appealed to him here, the only Grateful Dead song to invoke Frankenstein itself. You may be familiar with Garcia's 1995 interview, The Movie That Changed My Life, about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's worth seeking out in full. The iconography, the, the Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, and the Wolfman became figures of tremendous fascination for me. I mean, overwhelming. I mean, it led me, for example, things like the discovery of German Expressionist theater and film, you know what I mean? The James Whale original Frankenstein is so beautiful, beautiful lighting, beautiful sets, you know, that great angular stuff. The Lyceum held a deep connection to the spooky as well. Ken Hunt. In that song, it was just like Mary Shelley. That's the one that got me. The Lyceum was a theatre that was run by the actor-manager, which is a term in in dramas, Henry Irvin, who who was very famous. And Henry Irvin took over, I think it was 1878. Now, he was the actor-manager, so he he would perform uh, on stage, but he was directing the the management of the theatre. And he had a business manager, and his business manager was Bram Stoker. And I didn't know that, obviously, back in those days. Listener Stephen Gardner chimed in with more detail. 75 years before the Lyceum run, almost to the week, was the publication date of Bram Stoker's great horror novel, Dracula. Bram Stoker, the Irish writer, was better known in his lifetime as the manager of London's Lyceum Theatre. I think there was some strange draw that brought them there, involving monsters and darkness and gothic horror, to perform what was four days of phenomenal fine art. Did you say your name Ramble on, baby, 
But there it was, take 11 of Ramble on Rose, recorded on the last night of the tour. There was some work to be done on the song back home. On July 7th, Keith Godshow overdubbed piano, which can be heard weaving through the mix here, along with an extra layer of backing vocals, added July 12th, wiping Garcia's original singing. I know this song, it ain't never gonna I'm gonna march you up and down The luck of county line Take you to the leader of the band Janet Furman was tape operator for the overdub sessions. I remember one funny little quirky thing. I think it's on Ramble on Rose on Europe 72 album. There's one place where there's a beep. And it was was caused by, I think, um, a, a mic cable getting kicked out. And, you know, it was just like a transient that happened from suddenly being disconnected. And we tried to get rid of that and just couldn't do it. And it's still there. You you can hear it very plainly in the middle of the song. Beep. <laughs> if you listen carefully for it, it it's loud and clear. I guess Wiz was back in the truck by then. Like pretty much all the other new material on Europe 72, Ramelon Rose was an instant standard in the Dead's repertoire. Over the late 70s, it gradually migrated into the first set another unassuming Garcia Hunter original. But both songwriters clearly remained in love with it, never disappearing from the Dead's repertoire for too long and changing very little, except for the sound of the musicians, their instruments, and how they chose to address the song's changes. Here's a version from March 29, 1990, recorded at NASA Coliseum and released on Wake Up to Find Out. I'm gonna sing called it a favorite. There's something funny about that song, he would say. Now seems as good a time as any to repeat an Elvis Costello quote we heard at the beginning of the first episode this season. The 72 songs have a strange thing. They they went, they refer to ragtime and they refer to a lot of things that seem to come out of the 20s. And even though the music is still played by an electric rock and roll band, I feel that those songs from 72 have something in common with the songs of the band from around the the first two albums particularly, in that it sounds like music that was recorded in the 1880s, except it's all electric. It doesn't make... It's like weird time travel music. To me, that's more extraordinary, that ability to summon another time in relatively simple chords. They're not actually that complex without really sounding like a pastiche, but it's a mixture of the phrasing, the humility of the singing, the lyrical idiom, the lyrical references, and the, just, the, just how unusual those songs are as a rhythm. This shuffle, this strange, the pulsing rhythm that a lot of them have, like uh, Tennessee Jed and Ramelon Rose, both have this 
strange kind of rhythm that really isn't heard in very much other music. Lots of Grateful Dead songs are easy standards for bands. The excellent website deaddisc.com maintains pages for each Dead original with deep sub-discographies of recorded covers. It's a delight to explore. But not too many people have covered Ramble on Rose, perhaps because of that shuffle beat that Elvis articulated. So we'll close out the Ramble on Rose portion of the Dead cast with a bit of a relatively recent version by the great singer Winona Judd on her Winona EP from 2020, joined by aspiring Nashvilleian Bob Weir, who's been tweaking one of the lyrics in recent years. Just like Mary Shelley She wrote Frankenstein There's still one more song to catch for Europe 72. In fact, the last song on side A of Europe 72 was the last song performed on the Europe 72 tour. Take 19 of One More Saturday Night was the keeper. Deadheads got a big dose of the song that year, released in the States on Bob Weir's Ace album later that spring. In Europe, the studio version had been released in advance of the tour as the A-side of a single and credited to the Grateful Dead featuring Bobby Ace. They played the bejesus out of it in Europe, often in an encore slot. The day after the Europe 72 version at the tour closer, the beat club on Radio Bremen aired the results of the Dead session. You can hear all about that in our West Germany episode from a few weeks back. Hopefully we can go deeper another day. But One More Saturday Night has an unusual origin story that made it a pretty good tour closer in Europe, especially. The song actually began as a collaboration between Weir and Robert Hunter, and was one of the ones that led to their creative falling out over the course of 1971. Hunter gave Weir a verse. Dynamite and Depot, bricks are pouring down, cost your reputation if they catch you hanging round, every choice you look at serves but to confuse, reckon you could call it the United States Blues. Oh, baby, one more Saturday night. Uh Uh-huh, one more Saturday night. From there, Weir made it his own. He asked Hunter if the resulting song could be titled U.S. Blues. Hunter told him no, and removed his name from the songwriting credits. A few years later, a new dead song would appear with the winking lyric, you can call this song the United States Blues. Put a bookmark there. On Europe 72, one more Saturday night was one of the last tweaked up in the studio. Weir replaced his own vocals with two new tracks on August 1st, Jerry Garcia's 30th birthday. Garcia was perhaps hanging elsewhere. Garcia, Donna, and Phil added a round of catchy response vocals on August 3rd, 
becoming part of the song's arrangement in modified form, with Keith replacing his piano on August 8th. it for the Europe 72 tour. One more Friday night in this case, and one more loadout for the Quippies. Then, across the ocean and another continent, back to the toontown of Marin County with 73 hours of tape. What to do with it all? Thanks very much for tuning in, and huge thanks to our guests in this episode, including Sam Cutler, Steve Parrish, Alan Trist, David Nelson, Ben Holler, Janet Furman, John Morris, Courtney Pollock, Alan Arkish, Alex Allen, Andy Childs, Ken Hunt, Chris Jones, Graham Walker, Bill Giles, Derek Gilman, John Kiefer, Jim Smolin, Jeremy Poynton, Volkmar Rupp, David Lemieux, Graham Boone, Nicholas Merriweather, and Stephen Gardner. Also, special thanks to David Gans and Blair Jackson for providing archival interview audio. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and leave us a review if you're so inclined. Thank you very much. Next week, we wrap up Season 5 with one more episode, so don't unpack your bags just yet. See you then. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.